This episode of Effort Radio is brought to you by Food Stand. If your health has taken a back seat to the hustle, you're not alone. Check out Food Stand, the free app that helps you build lifelong healthy habits through joyful, science-backed, healthy eating challenges like eat less sugar or quit soda so you can ditch the diets and calorie counting for good. That's Food Stand, all one word. From Warren and NYC, it's Effort, a show based on our live storytelling series where female leaders and entrepreneurs share raw and personal stories of challenges they've overcome in their careers and what they learned in the hustle to achieve success. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Effort Radio. I'm Nicole Corbett, CEO of Warren. Today on the show, we have Jessica Gonzalez Rojas. She's the executive director at the National Latina Institute for Reproductive Health which is the only national reproductive justice organization that specifically works to advance reproductive health and rights for Latinas. She's been a leader in progressive movements for over 15 years, and she works in between the issues of immigrant rights as well as reproductive rights. So I'm really excited to have Jessica on the show today because Jessica actually spoke live at EFIT the day before the Women's March on Washington. She gave an incredible talk and told a lot of her personal stories about her background and her work in immigrant and reproductive rights. And we really wanted to have her on the show so that everybody who follows our podcast but could make it in person could hear from Jessica and hear some of her incredible stories. Jessica, welcome to the show. Yes, thank you. It was it was an awesome event. And like I think the audience for me was a very new one. And it was really exciting to see like creative folks who are really riled up to like do something. Yeah. So it was really awesome and inspiring. So thanks for having me. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I'm really happy to have you back on FIT Radio now. Yay. So can you tell me again, how did your interest in either immigration rights or reproductive health get started? I said that evening and I'll say it again, the personal is political. And when I went to college, what I thought I wanted to do was international relations. And I thought I wanted to be a diplomat and work in, you know, the UN or international space. And it's still a very worthy cause and something that's really important to me. But I started looking into issues that impact Latinos in the U.S. and determined that I should actually look at what are the systemic changes that could be made in society. Right. So you had an experience that you mentioned before at Planned Parenthood when you were younger that affected you really deeply. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, when I was 19 and I was a freshman in college, me and my then partner became sexually active and we wanted to be safe and get birth control. And I made an appointment at my local Planned Parenthood, and that's back in Boston. And we had an address and we were walking to the clinic on the day of the appointment. And we passed a giant group of protesters and we kind of walked past them at first and then kind of had to step back and be like, oh, that's that address. That's where we have to go. And I remember looking at the protesters and kind of not understanding what was going on, but we had to get through the crowd. And these folks grabbed me and and yelled at me and told me not to do it and like physically grabbed my arm to prevent me from getting to that clinic. They were holding you back. They were holding me back, like really like trying to pull me back. And then they had these awful images of bloody fake fetuses. And I remember my partner was literally shielding me to get me through the crowd. And then when we got to the door, it was locked. (gasps) And it was because safety. So I had to buzz somebody, and the guard came, and they had to check my name. And again, this is amongst a crowd of people. So I was finally allowed. There's people screaming in the background. Screaming in the background. Yes. Yes. It was so intimidating and so scary. And And I was really confused because in my mind, I was going for a health appointment. It was a pretty routine thing in my mind. And when I got in, I was so shaken. I just remember literally shaking and filling out the forms and just wondering what 
what was going on. And I realized that that appointment was like a political act of courage. And you would never think that a regular effort to get birth control would be a political act of courage, but it was. And, you know, what I like to say is that they try to prevent me from getting health care and they try to prevent me from getting birth control because they thought I was having an abortion. Right. But it doesn't matter what I was there for. What they did instead was galvanize an activist. Right. Like I actually yeah. became like angry <laughs> and yeah. and I couldn't believe that that's what they were doing to people trying to get services and not knowing what services they were getting. And it didn't matter. So that was like a consciousness raising moment where I was like, wow, this is what women and and men, I mean, they serve all communities and trans people. Like, that's what they face every single day, just trying to get healthcare. And these doctors and the workers in in the center have to deal with that every single day. And I remember in that moment being like, never, never again. This is something no one should ever experience. And unfortunately, people still experience, but I get to do my work and I get to fight these awful policies, ensure that people really understand the complexities behind decisions around abortion or getting birth control and all these things and ensure that we're supporting our community in every way possible. So that personal moment of getting healthcare became this courageous moment that sort of fueled my awareness around domestic level work that needs to happen around reproductive health rights and justice. So now you specifically work at the intersection of reproductive rights and immigrant rights. Mm -hmm. So can you tell me how those overlap Absolutely. So our organization uses a reproductive justice framework, and it's the idea of reproductive justice is that we have to look at all the conditions that people face um, that impact their lives and their ability to make decisions about their health, their family, and their future. So we look at everything from immigration status, the language they speak, where they live in the country, their socioeconomic status, their gender identity, their sexual orientation. So we look at all those factors in doing this work and say, you know, a woman who has no access to their low income and they don't have access to, to money and resources, that right to an abortion that's protected by Roe v. Wade does not even exist if they can't exercise that right. It's sort of a de facto ban because they don't have the money or resources to exercise that right. And programs like Medicaid unfairly deny funding for abortion care. So their health insurance that they use denies them care. So we look at ensuring that these rights and privileges that we've fought for all these years are accessible to people despite all the identities and conditions that embody who they are. So those things are really important. And we work with communities throughout the country who are denied access to care just because of where they live or the language they speak or their immigration status. And that's why immigration is such a connected issue, because if your immigration status prevents you from thriving in this country, making decisions about pregnancy or parenting or having a family or creating a family, whichever way you want to create it, that's a denial of justice. Could you share maybe some stories of people that have been impacted by your organization or, um, you know, that that are struggling with some of these issues that you're trying to help? Mm -hmm. Um, And I remember one woman in particular in Wisconsin, we were doing a training where she was actually a little antagonistic around abortion rights because we we created the space to talk about abortion. And because often in Latino communities and other cultures, there's not a lot of sex positivity, right? We don't grow up like there's generally some stigma around sex and sexuality and particularly abortion. True. Um, And she was an immigrant from Colombia. 
And we learned that her family was very political and she was very kind of upper class in Colombia and she had come to this country and was put in a very different social class situation. And she opened up and said that she had a clandestine abortion in Colombia. Wow. And she carried that guilt and she carried that stigma mm. all her life and it carries over here. So she was reacting in a way that she was always told she should react, that this was bad or immoral, but she carried and internalized those ideas. So that was a really powerful moment to, to recognize what kind of stigma exists and how we become, it be, becomes really internalized and we end up acting out in that way or not being accepting towards others or thinking we had the good abortion and they had the bad abortions, right? Putting assumptions on other people. So we, what we do is create the space to, to unpack that and dig through it. And now this woman's like a huge activist, right? And she's really oh, wow. much more engaged. And I think she's really shifted her thinking mm-hmm. around that. You know, when, when Texas cut some of the family planning funding, which ended up sort of closing clinics that provided breast cancer screenings, um, birth control, um, sexual education information, just basic stuff. We heard of women splitting birth control pills with their sister to make them last longer. We heard of women crossing the border into Mexico to get birth control when they live right here in the U.S. And these women not were all like undocumented or anything. Many of them were U.S. citizens, but could not get the health care that they needed because the clinics in their community were closed. So we heard all sorts of stories, and we actually have been able to document it in a human rights report called Northwest Texas. And so we were able to take the stories of the women in the Rio Grande Valley to both you know, the state house, and we did a briefing on it, and we went to the Capitol and did a briefing on it, mm-hmm. and we brought these women to tell their own stories, mm-hmm. and that was the most powerful thing. And we ended up in Geneva and actually testifying before a human rights body to, to say that the United States is denying the human rights of immigrant women by p- preventing them access to health care. And this UN body actually agreed. Um, so we are in record in the, you know, the United Nations in terms of this work and the documentation of the human rights abuses that our women face, because some of this was really egregious, like, you know, women who had cervical cancer who couldn't get um, care or treatment or screening. People just end up pregnant because they couldn't get um, an abortion that they wanted or birth control in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, people who risked their lives across the border and pretend, potentially be separated from their family to get health care in, in Mexico. So it, it was just, you know, the stories are endless, sadly. But what we really invest in is actually having those folks be able to share their stories and share those experiences and elevate it, right? Because they're the voices that matter. And we want to make sure that we connect them with decision makers and policy makers to understand, like, by cutting family planning funding, I now have breast cancer. By cutting family planning funding, I now have cervical cancer. By cutting family planning funding, I now have more children I cannot afford to raise. Like, those things are really important that policymakers are learning that this is the impact of their work. Mm -hmm. So how are you feeling right now overall with what's happening these first two weeks of Donald Trump's administration? We've heard a lot of different things happening with immigration policy and refugee ban and the Women's March. There's a ton happening. So how do you see it right now? What's your outlook? So I'm a glass half full person. Um, So obviously what we're seeing with this administration is horrifying. So the glass half full size is, okay, yes. <laughs> I know that wasn't very positive, um, is the galvanization, the turnout, the energy. 
Um, the Women's March, I believe, from what I've been reading, has been the largest in history. It was a global march. Um, there were people in Antarctica. There were people all over the world, in Latin America and Europe and Africa. I mean, everywhere that turned out. And I was at the one in, in D.C., and I got the honor of speaking from the podium there. So that's been inspiring and seeing the turnout at airports and around the country right. and, and rallying. There's like spontaneous rallies happening around the country. Um, so that's really inspiring because we have not seen that in so long. And I think that's going to be kind of the change that we need to ensure that our elected's remain accountable and that our voices are being elevated to to those in power, speaking truth to power. So that's my glass half full moment because yeah. I think people are really woke to the fact of how much harm this president could do amongst all our communities and we have to stand together. So I know that, you know, there are a lot of people that probably want to do something to help and maybe they went to the march or maybe not. But for people that aren't necessarily active on a day to day basis, mm-hmm. this could be new. So. What do you believe is the single most impactful thing that people can do if they care about issues like immigration rights or reproductive health? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think first off, if you have a couple bucks to spare, please, please, please donate to organizations that do this work, that invest in community, that invest in power building and organizing in policy advocacy because it's so, so important. So And and we've seen how, how real that becomes, right? So the oh, ACLU yeah. immediately, immediately stepping in amazing. and raising what, like twenty four million dollars <laughs> over in twenty four hours? Yes. And it's been exciting that, you know, organizations like Lyft, you know, companies like Lyft who have, you know, put out a very proactive and bold statement in support of, of refugees and, and Muslims said themselves that they were going to donate a million dollars to the ACLU. So that's really exciting to see how companies yeah. um, and private companies can actually make a difference as well. So money really does matter because mm-hmm. as nonprofit organizations, you know, we we depend on grants, we depend on donations, and we don't get government money, but a lot of organizations that do that money is going to go away under this administration. So mm, it's see. even more important than ever to make those investments. Right. Um, and nonprofits like yours, you know, if people donate to your organization. Mm-hmm. Where, where can they where can they go to donate? Oh, uh, LatinaInstitute.org. Um, and there's a donate button there. Multiple avenues for, awesome. for fundraising. And when people donate to your organization or other organizations like yours, what does that money go to do? Oh, it goes back to the community. So the work that we do on the ground every single day in trainings, in bringing folks to their state capitals. So we work in Texas. We have to go to Austin. It's like a five-hour drive from the Rio Grande Valley. Miami to Tallahassee is a seven-hour drive. I mean, that's gas. That's a van rental. That's, you know, getting ensuring our folks are fed and, and, and are trained. Um, it goes to all the work that's happening around the country. So this is really critical. Right now in Virginia, there's a 45 five-day legislative session, and they are just, you know, putting out some of the worst stuff, and we're just fighting tooth and nail. And the more activists that we're able to bring, the more funding we get, the more power we show in the room. When there's a hearing that not a lot of people come to, and there's a crowd of, you know, 15 Latinos (laughs) with saying, like, salud, dignidad, justicia, which means health, dignity, and justice, and testify and, and, you know, write op-eds, like, that's a really powerful display of action and engagement. So I think that's those are really powerful things that funds are able to support. Do you feel like people showing up to a hearing like that changes the lawmakers' minds about yes. what they should do? Yes. Tell me more Abs- about that. Absolutely. 
I think that's why storytelling is critical. So when someone can show up to a hearing and say, because this funding has been cut, I now, you know, am splitting pills with my family member. Um, I now have cervical cancer. I am now struggling to make ends meet. You know, you are my elected representative. And I don't speak just for myself, but I speak for a community. Those are powerful messages because they're used to hearing from very politically engaged people who have really savvy messaging. But if you can deliver real everyday folks who just experience this, there, there's a humanity to it, right? There's a face. They have to address us by our face and our names when we show up. And we had, uh, we had a human rights hearing in Texas where we had a young kid say, um, you know, Mama, if you, you know, can't get the money for your health care, I'll quit school and try to get a job to pay for your breast exam or, you know, like these are the kind of things we were hearing that people were so um, dire and dire need that those were the kind of messages we we're hearing from other family members willing to, you know, quit their job or, or do other things or, or get a job and leave school or college to support one another. And that's not something people should have to decide between putting food on the table or getting, you know, a pep smear. So I'm really curious to hear, when I went to visit your office, you have this boardroom Mm -hmm. or this meeting room and Mm -hmm. it has this beautiful mural and it has all of these Latinas and history and activists and paintings of your staff Mm -hmm. also in there. It was so inspiring. So tell us, who are you inspired by? Mm-hmm. You know, who do you look up to, you know, when you think about through the to get you through the tough times, yeah, yeah. you know? Yeah. I wish I could put a picture of my grandmother. I think about my Puerto Rican grandmother, my ma- my maternal grandmother. She uh, had polio in Puerto Rico and was quarantined. She was someone who loved school and loved reading and loved books. And, you know, her father was a little old school and felt like school wasn't for girls and you know, sort of the homemaking and all that, but she was forced into quarantine because of polio and it was spreading. And she lived a really hard life and she was very poor. She would tell me stories about when it would rain and there's like a hurricane that her roof would fly off and they would just get wet and dirty because there was no roof. Um, So that's a condition she lived in. And when she was in her early 20s, she just said, I'm leaving, I'm going to the US and going to the mainland. And she moved with her sister, who was here in New York. Um, And I think her father was very upset about it. Her mother was very upset about it. But she did it because she knew she had to leave the conditions. It wasn't, she didn't feel like she had a a future as a person who had polio. And she had like a a skinny leg and she Mm -hmm. was disabled Um, and a a woman. So she, she came here for a better life and just to make that shift and with a disability and she prides herself on always working and always fending for herself. And she lived in public housing and she got public assistance, but she she was very proud and, and, and always worked and always said, you know, I'm saving for my children and I'm saving for my family. And she carried that kind of pride and love for family every single day. And she passed ugh, like last year, almost, uh, almost a year ago. And she was 90... Gosh, 92, 94. Wow. I mean, she made it pretty long yeah. for being someone who who had so much suffering and so much struggle and so many health challenges. She had asthma. But yet every day she was just, she was so proud of me. She was so proud of all, everyone in their family and, and really encouraged us to pursue our dreams. And so I think for me, it's just thinking about all the things she went through. And yeah, she, she served in my heart always. And 
um, I'm just so lucky. Like my son remembers her and um, and and thinks of her and asks for her. And mm-hmm. she was just very influential in my life. So um, yeah, she she inspires me. I should throw a picture of her on that wall. Yes, <laughs> you should. You absolutely should. Yeah. So just as a closing, mm-hmm. what would you want to tell some of the people that are listening to this episode? You know, what do you want them to know about you know, what's happening now in the U.S. and you know, maybe what they can do or you know, mm-hmm. what kind of outlook. There's there's so much negativity going around, mm-hmm. but also inspiration. Yes. You know, what would you say to them? Yeah. I think what I would say is that the next four years um, are going to be really, really hard. But what I hold on to is like the resiliency of our ancestors. Like to think of my grandmother who's came from Puerto Rico poor, disabled, with polio, with no money. You know, she she survived and, and in some ways thrived um, despite all the challenges. And, and we come from that, right? Latinos, people of color, we, immigrants, we come from this resilient DNA. And for me, that's what drives me forward. So my favorite quote is from Audre Lorde that says, if we dare to be powerful and use our strength in the service of our vision, it becomes less and less important whether we're afraid. And I think for me, fear is very present in this administration. And in the face of fear, we have to be strong. In the face of fear, we have to be resilient. In the face of fear, we have to survive and thrive and fight because our community matters too much. So I think you have to hang on to that because I think it's just gonna be really hard. But to think about what our ancestors and people before us, the shoulders I stand, the powerful women who, you know, uh, fasted for the right to vote um, and the immigrants who fought for dignity, like those are the shoulders we stand on. um, And those are the shoulders I'm going to continue the voices and and spirit that I'm going to bring with me in in the work and that everyone should bring with them as they as they move forward. And everyone has a voice. Um, Please don't let this fear silence anybody because we have a powerful voice thank you so much yay thank you thank you so much for listening to another episode of effort radio if you enjoyed it please subscribe on itunes and leave us a written review we'd really appreciate it and it would help other women to discover this podcast and be inspired by the stories you can also find us online at www.warn.nyc forward slash effort or follow us on instagram and twitter at Warren Creative. That's W-O-R-N Creative. See you next week.